Welcome to a universe of stories. Kelly Cass Falzone is an award-winning poet, a freelance teaching artist, and a master's level counselor for Nashville's Southern Word Artist Studio. Kelly has written and directed productions for the stage, including the acclaimed spoken word projects, Nashville Now, 2010 Literary Census, and Future Break. As a finalist in the Barry College Emerging Southern Women Writers Competition, Kelly has been twice nominated for the Pushcart Prize and has been awarded prizes and recognition from the Tennessee Writers Alliance, the Knoxville Writers Guild, the Chattanooga Writers Guild, the Chester H. Jones Foundation, and the Unterberg Poetry Center. She's recently been awarded the 2018 B. Gonzalez Prize for Poetry for a group of poems appearing in Stone Canoe, a Journal of Arts and Literature and Social Commentary, number 12. Kelly has been a member of the Art and Soul Studio in Nashville for over 20 years. Today we have her in the studio with reader advisor Rebecca Melvin. Let's listen in on the tips and tricks to bring your artistic creativity to the surface. Good morning, patrons, and welcome to another episode of A Universe of Stories. Today we are going to be talking about creativity and art and really embracing your creative sides. Helping us realize our passions is Kelly Cass Falzone. Thank you so much for joining me and taking time out of your schedule to be here. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Rebecca. Happy to be here. Yes, ma'am. Well, let's begin in the beginning, as they say. I know that you are involved in something called Art and Soul. Could you start by telling us what that is? Art and Soul is a community of artists. It's been in Nashville for about 30 years. We are a studio that offers classes to the community as well as membership to those that want to come and use the space on a regular basis. I've been a part of Art and Soul for about 20 years, starting first as a student. It was created by our mentor, teacher, Aranima Orr, who has been here, like I said, she started it 30 years ago. She's a Californian at heart, but came here and wanted to create a studio that was based in the expressive arts. The core practices we utilize are movement, sounding, art making, and play. How we might be different from other studios that offer classes in town is that we really try to foster an environment of safety and non-judgment. So we don't talk about art as good or bad or the right way to do something or the wrong way to do something. We're really trying to offer students and community members an opportunity to just explore what means something to them, what comes out of them, follow their urges, their impulses, and trust those. So I started as a student. I began teaching creative writing, maybe after about 10 or 12 years or so at Art and Soul. And then I began calling myself an artist. It took a while, quite a few years, but I really connected with the idea of play, which is, for me, one of the main differences that I've found at Art and Soul is this opportunity to reconnect with your playful side, as well as the idea of play being something that's not product-oriented, but is instead process. So if you think about being a child playing with blocks, you know, you'll get your blocks out and you'll stack them up, and then at the end of your play session, you put them away. Uh, So there's not a product that you worry about hanging on a wall or someone else evaluating. And that was really, really instrumental for me to connect with just the joy of making. And that led to my becoming a book artist, teaching at Art and Soul, taking over leadership there, and being a part of building the community. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's one of my favorite places in Nashville. (laughs) 
I can see why. <laughs> so this truly sounds like a place for the creative sort of all types. Yes. Can you give us an example of what types of artists are involved in this community? Sure. We have a lot of different kinds of people over the years that have come through Art and Soul. But I would say a couple different kinds of groups of people seem to really connect there. We have a great deal of women that are members there. Also, although we have members who are in their 20s, 30s, there's quite a few women who seem to come in their middle life, 40s, 50s, 60s, particularly around changes in their life, maturing. A lot of people come because they want to try something new. My experience as a teacher is that quite a few people will come to our introductory classes feeling somewhat wounded from years before they maybe had art teachers, I mean all the way back into grammar school, that told them they weren't talented or that told them they couldn't make things, they weren't doing it right. Unfortunately, that shuts children's creativity off and they're afraid to try. And so a lot of times our students come very trepidatious, but maybe they've heard that we're a really safe space. And they come to just dip their toe back in and hopefully we can nurture them to feel brave enough to try new things and understand that we're not going to judge and we're not going to direct them in some certain way. Right. Yeah. So you, of course, fit right in here with this lovely community. I do. What kind of art do you contribute? I guess, aside from just being a participant in classes and community member, I teach, and that's one of my arts. But one of the kinds of visual arts that I've been creating over the last many years is book arts. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but I'll tell you, I was writing my whole life. I write poetry and have been doing that since I was 11 years old. And I'm very comfortable with that. I've studied poetry, workshopped with a lot of different kinds of people, and performed poetry. So my confidence level is pretty high. But as an artist, I never considered myself an artist until many years into my work at Art and Soul. I wouldn't say that I could draw. And I remember being a young person thinking, well, if you could draw, then you were really an artist. You know? Right. What happened, though, is that I had, about 10 years ago now, both my parents died within a very short period of time, within a year, including my paternal grandmother. So I lost quite a few people in a short amount of time. It was very significant for me. And what I found was that after that happened, after that very exhausting year, I was not drawn to write. I was not drawn to using language. I was feeling resistant. I felt a little lost. And it just so happened I came back to Nashville from being with my mother as she was dying. I saw that there was a book arts class being offered at my son's school, but for adults. And I called about it and said, what's this? Okay, so they invited me to be a part of the class. It was just the medicine I needed at that time. Book arts can encompass a lot of things. It can be learning how to bind books, putting pages together, creating covers, binding books together. And you might think of things like journals or blank books, things that you could then fill. Book arts also includes repurposing already made books. So we might take cast off books from the library or discarded books, cut, glue, paste, disassemble, reassemble, sort of repurpose that book into a new sort of artistic book, one that you might be able to write or draw in, or one that is just on its own a piece of art. 
You can also create books that are more sculptural than the traditional book you might read. And so it's a wide category of book arts. It can often include printing words or images, photographs, whatever, drawings. So I didn't know much about book arts. I took this class, and it was just the medicine I needed. I found that after my parents had died, I really sort of needed this very quiet, maybe pre-verbal way of working things out. And book arts, when I was first learning, takes a lot of precision as far as cutting the pages correctly, measuring. Those are skills my dad had taught me because he was a carpenter. And then it takes a lot of sewing. Some of the skills involve sewing, which is something my mother taught me. And so I was able to be really in this quiet making space that involved a lot of sort of ripping and sewing and repair and destruction, sort of mimicking my grief. So I continued to take classes in that over the years and then started exhibiting some book arts work. And it's been something then that I've brought and shared at Art and Soul, teaching some classes, introductory classes. And we've also brought some other artists that I've met along the way to come and teach. So I guess that's one of the things I've contributed there. (laughs) Just one of the things. (laughs) I'm sure there's more. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So as a poet and writer, what sort of disciplines do you have in your life to make sure that you write and you have time for anything else, just life in general? That's a great question. It seems like it's easier for life to kind of take over and uh, important for me to make sure I make time for the writing. You know, it's sort of been different over the years at different times in my life. When I was a young mother, I have one son, and when he was, between the time he was born and he was two, I don't think I even read a single book. I was working and then coming home to him, and I couldn't fit it in. I couldn't fit in reading, and I couldn't fit in writing, and I had to just be okay with that. But by the time he was about two, I said, I really need to make time for this. So at that time, it required that I schedule it in, (laughs) and I really could only fit it in on Mondays, but... I communicated with my husband and made Monday a writing day for myself. At the time, I liked meeting with a writing group, and they met every other Monday night. So I would set aside time on Monday afternoon to be writing, and then if it was a Monday the group was meeting, I would go. And if it was a Monday they weren't meeting, I would continue to work on my writing at night. So that was a matter of scheduling it, and that's about all I could fit in. And then, you know, at other times, other things open up. What's great about writing is that you don't need a lot. You don't need a lot of materials. All you need is paper and pen. Or I guess you could argue computer and things like that. But I, my history has been that I would write with paper and pen. And you can have a little notebook with a hard cardboard back and a pen and make your desk anywhere. That's one of the things that worked really well for me and I think works for a lot of people is that you can fit it in in your lunch break. You can take it with you and write at the park. You can write at your kitchen table. You can write at the coffee shop. The flexibility that writing allows versus maybe something you need to have supplies and your bookmaking supplies and thread and paper and things to cut. Writing, I've found, has been the most easy to fit in. So just doing it. A lot of people talk about writing. A lot of people say they want to write. They read books about writing. They go out to readings and hear writers, but they never somehow get to the writing, maybe fear or whatever. Really, the only thing you need to be a writer is to sit down and write. 
And if you can let go of as much as possible, and this is one of the things we teach a lot at Art and Soul, let go of the self-judgment and editor and worry about audience, especially initially, and just write for yourself, imagining no one else has to see it. You could crumple it up if you want to throw it away. You could burn it. That sometimes is the permission people need to just start. So I'd recommend that. But just writing, getting to the chair, something I call kissing the page. <laughs> you know, our relationships in life need affection. We want to hug and kiss the people we love on a regular basis. And it's the same with your passions. And if you think about it, I haven't kissed my page today. I haven't gone to the paper and written anything. And my relationship is going to suffer if I don't. That can be a good prompt for yourself. That's amazing. I love that. I absolutely you. do. Thank you. I love the idea of giving yourself permission to enjoy something that you're passionate about. Yes. I think that's so important. Now, I don't want to give you the, the false impression, though, that it's always easy. Of course not. <laughs> it's not. It's hard work. And it's sitting down and writing regularly or getting uh, into a project where you really want it to end up turning into something, so you're attending to it every day, you can, you know, struggle. So uh, I don't want to pretend it's easy, but it's certainly, I found it to be worthwhile. Exactly. You're working towards something that you're passionate about. It's still going to be work. Yeah, but and very satisfying, satisfying because of that. Work. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us about your writing process as a whole? I know we've kind of touched base a little bit on it already. Is there mm -hmm. anything else you'd want to add about it? Well, I would say that my writing process for poetry generally tends to come out of a lot of free writing. Sometimes I'll be inspired to write about something particular, but often I'll come to the page without an idea. It can be daunting to stare at the page, and so I've learned, and it's become easier for me, to just begin to write without judgment about whether it's meaningful or going anywhere. Most of your listeners have probably heard about free writing, but it's essentially where you begin to write without worrying about editing what you're writing along the way, not even worrying about things like spelling and grammar, and just allowing what's coming to you in the moment to go down on the page. It's kind of a, just a, a free association. So a lot of times that's how I'll start writing. And it might be that I start writing about my breakfast because <laughs> I just ate some or a letter I got in the mail or a birthday coming up for one of my siblings or something. So I'll just start to write about that and then allow my mind to leap around, which it will. So although I might start writing about a grandparent, it could turn into writing about a house fire, which then takes me to writing about Notre Dame Cathedral because oh, wow. of the tragedy that just happened there yesterday. Allowing myself to jump around in my mind on the page, that's the kind of free writing. And I'll do that for 15, 20 minutes or longer if I can. And then what happens is I'll go back and look at that, either later that day or another day. Generally, out of a free write, I'll find a little phrase, an image, or an idea that I like. Well, something I've said that I have never really said that way before, or it sparks an idea that I think, oh, that could be a good poem. I'll pull that out. It's like a little nugget, like you've just mined, you know, <laughs> for your piece of gold. And I take that phrase out, and then I'll write, I'll free write about that for a while. 
Eventually, what will come is sort of these connections in my writing that start to shape into a poem. And then comes the real work. I might have a first draft of a poem, and then the real work of writing that I found is the revising, where you're trying to maybe make something happen, or you're really examining your word choices. And that's fun for me. That feels like polishing something, pruning is often a word I use to talk about my poetry. I like to go out in the yard and cut things down. <laughs> I'm not a gardener. I don't have a green thumb. But when it's time to trim stuff, you can call me. I love the idea of uh, trimming back the bushes, you know, making things controlled. And that's what happens in my poetry. I'll start to prune it. We use the word compression in poetry, where we might take something and synthesize it down, push it, compress it down into its most essential language. So that's really fun for me, saying exactly what it is I want to say as succinctly as possible or as accurately as possible or sensually as possible. That's typical. Once in a while, a poem will just come to me. I'll wake up with this idea and roll over and write something down and it's mostly there, but that's rare. That's <laughs> rare. It's the work of meeting the page every day and excavating for right. the good stuff. That's a good process. There's lots of ways to write. I've heard lots of writers speak about writing. I've listened to podcasts, interviews, read books by writers. So there's not just one way to enter writing. Mine is not the only way. It's what works for me. If your listeners want to start a writing practice or expand their writing practice, find what works for them. If they find it works better for them to start writing at 10 o'clock at night when they're tired and their mind isn't so particular and you know it lets them expand, write then. If it's the mornings, if it's outdoors, if it's indoors, if it's speaking into a, a voice recorder, a lot of people might write that way first. There's no hard and fast rules, which I love. So you have also been involved with Southern Word, which is a teen-focused program here in Nashville. Yes. Can you tell me what working with that is like? Southern Word is a nonprofit organization that works with young people from middle school all the way up through college using poetry, performance, writing as a means of encouraging leadership, responsibility, world change. Benjamin Smith is a gentleman who came to town maybe a little over 10 years ago and brought this program to Nashville. He came from California. And when he first came to Nashville, I connected with him, and he called the program Youth Speaks Nashville. So some people might remember that name. But then a few years into the program, it was changed to Southern Word. The program goes into schools, libraries, community centers, and Benjamin has organized a team of what we call poet mentors, like myself, who will go in and lead groups, teach classes, workshops, readings, different sorts of opportunities for young people to tap into their own writing voice, speaking voice, performing voice, and feel valued and know that things they say matter, things they feel matter. Southern Word has expanded to a number of counties, not just Davidson County, but surrounding counties. There's lots of wonderful events that happen. You can go to southernword.org and look at the kinds of events that are happening where you can go and hear young people perform. Always inspiring. I've never been to a Southern Word event where I haven't either shed a tear or felt like 
jumping up and down. I mean, these young people have incredible things to say, creative in the way they say it, really give me a lot of hope for what's to come in the world. One of the things that happens is there's a series of slams. Slams are performance poetry competitions where the audiences are always very encouraging of all participants. But there is a panel of judges, typically. A slam winner is usually chosen. It's a really positive, good-hearted kind of competition. And the young people who've been part of Southern Word will compete and get better and better at their skills. And then we'll generally, Southern Word will take a team of four or five young people to the national competition, slam competitions. So they've taken young people from town over the years to San Francisco, D.C., New Orleans, all these great places throughout the years. So, And the younger poets watch the older poets and learn from them. It's just a really, really wonderful organization. So I highly encourage your listeners to check them out, and, and maybe you'll bring some of the Southern Word young people here to... Uh, read on your show. I hope so. Oh, it would be fantastic. It would be great. It would be great. Where is the most interesting place that your writing has taken you? The longer I've been writing and publicly reading my work, I've been able to speak in front of audiences in different settings and meet new people, and that's really been great. I'm a lifelong learner. I consider myself a lifelong learner. I've been out of school a long time. But I like to go to workshops and continue to learn and be with other fellow students. I've gone to workshops in Key West, Florida, Squaw Valley, California, near Reno, for a nine-day workshop. I've gone to a wonderful place called Omega Institute in New York State for a workshop with one of my hero poets, Sharon Olds. My writing has allowed me to go study with some of the greatest writers that I admire and also see different parts of the country. That's been quite a privilege. When I think about where my writing has taken me internally, I think about the things I've learned through my writing. One of the things I love about writing poetry is that often I'll start, as I described earlier, not knowing what I would be writing about. And then even if I choose something I'm going to be writing about, I'll start to write and will typically end up somewhere I did not expect. That's a real gift. So I tend to learn things about myself I didn't know or that I didn't know I knew. It's a way of creating meaning in the world for myself and also a way of gaining understanding and maybe some compassion for myself. We all have places in our life that we are wounded, I think, or hurt or carry regret. Writing about those difficult, scary, or sad things tends to allow me to accept them more, love myself more through them, and also understand other people more. And I love the surprise of what can come from that. It's a good journey. So you also do book art, which we've talked about. Yes. Can you describe what you do with books? Yeah. So earlier I mentioned that book arts can really encompass a lot of different kinds of elements of books, but I'll specifically talk about mine. I would say beyond learning the techniques, which I did for quite a few years, I learned sort of the basics and the techniques, which is a great base. And then, fortunately, I had teachers that encouraged us to then take those basic forms of the book and use them as a springboard to create whatever was moving in me. I really started and enjoyed the idea of finding objects, converting those to some kind of book. That really intrigued me. 
I tend to be a collector of objects. I like to go into thrift stores and things like that and find unique things. So, for example, I had this little cigarette case that I had bought. I don't smoke, but I had this cigarette case that I'd found in a thrift store. And once I had learned some bookmaking techniques, I thought, wow, this cigarette case opens on a hinge. It's like a natural cover. I could make this into a book of some kind. And I did. I incorporated what's called an accordion structure that uh, once you open the cigarette case can pull out uh, like an accordion might. It sort of expands. Something I grew up with in my house was called a silent butler. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. A silent butler is a little, usually metal, kind of tray with a lid that has a handle. You hold it in one hand and you can usually pop the lid up with your thumb. It allows you to hold this tray in one hand while you put things in it. And my job, unfortunately, my parents were both chain smokers. And my job was to walk around the house and empty the cigarette ashtrays into the silent butler and carry the silent butler to the garbage and throw them out, okay? (laughs) I know, it's kind of a crazy thing, but it was something that was around my house and that was one of my jobs. Well, years later, as an adult, I saw a silent butler in a thrift store. It was kind of trashed up a little, you know, dense and stuff. But I was looking at it, and of course it flooded all these memories back to me. And I thought, wow, it has room in it. This could be a book of some guy. <laughs> and so I took that silent butler home, and I started to think about what kind of book. And what ended up happening was I took a board game, a clue game. I took that board game from childhood, and I disassembled it and put it back together in a book structure, incorporated some elements from my own childhood, including pictures of my siblings who I'd played the game with, as well as some things that had to do with cigarettes and lungs, and explored this idea of being sort of an instrument in my parents' addiction to cigarettes, that I was sort of around cleaning things up, and sort of the mixed little guilt there, because they had both died of lung disease, the mixed guilt of hating the cigarettes, but in one sense it being a really key element in my childhood. The scent, the practice, my parents always had coffee with their cigarettes. So I incorporated this book, which the clue game, people were trying to figure out what killed the victim. And here I was trying to figure out how cigarettes played its role in my parents' death, as well as my role. And so the book structure then fit into the silent butler and was a way to reuse materials. And it was part of a show at the downtown library quite a few years ago where 13 book artists showed work using reused materials. It was an exciting opportunity for me to exhibit my work and also see all the different ways people could incorporate used materials into their book structures, all different. I'll mention if we have time one more book structure that I hope that your listeners won't be offended by. I found that some people either love or hate this book that I created. After my mom died, my siblings and I, of course, cleaned up her apartment, divided up her belongings. And one of the things that was there at the house were my mother's dentures. My mother was cremated and they wouldn't burn the dentures, so they gave them back to us. And when it came time to leave my mother's house, 
For some reason, I did not want to throw the dentures away. They seemed a very integral part of my mother. When she had gotten them, it was very life-changing. She could suddenly smile again with confidence. So there was a lot of emotion attached to those dentures. And so I just brought them back here to Nashville with me, not knowing exactly what I would do with them. But I had them sort of in my closet for a long time. And then this opportunity came to be a part of the art show where the book artists would use reuse materials. Separately, I had written a poem about my mother's teeth, and it was called Her Bite. When I was asked to be a part of this show, I suddenly remembered, oh, I have these dentures, I have this poem about my mother's teeth. Maybe there's a way in which I can put those things together. And I did. I took my mother's dentures and found a way to attach them together so they opened on a hinge, and I made little translucent pages that had the words of my poem cut out like small teeth on each page. At the same time I was making it and following that urge that I had learned about in Art and Soul, following this impulse, I was, of course, having some feelings of, what am I doing? These are my mother's teeth. This is disrespectful, or this is just bizarro. And if anybody saw me doing it, they would think I was nuts, okay? At the same time as having these feelings of love and reflection about my mother, my mother and I had not always had an easy relationship. In fact, the poem talked about her bite or sort of the things that were difficult. But in some way, making this book of her teeth became a sort of gesture of love for her, of caring even after her death melding my love of language with a piece of her, and it was a really healing opportunity for myself. Those teeth, that book, was exhibited at the library with those artists that were making reuse books, and it got a lot of attention because of its unusualness, and some people hated it, and some people came and expressed to me how they were moved by it in a lot of ways. So Yeah, those are just a couple of the things I've done with book arts. Like poetry, they've sort of become things that end up teaching me more about myself by the end of making them. I love the idea you mentioned earlier when you were saying that creating, you know, poetry or making this book art, it's almost like giving yourself, allowing yourself the ability to really feel these things and kind of delve deeper into them. So for you making that, yes, yes, it's unusual, but I think that's the beauty of art. Mm. It's not just paintings, you know, it's not just Michelangelo, you Mm -hmm. know, it's... It's a way to express yourself. So I think if I had been lucky enough to go see that, I would have been like, this is so cool. This <laughs> is, it's not and not just cool in the sense that, wow, this is different, but mm-hmm. in the sense that it is moving, mm-hmm. that you're able to express these feelings so artistically, for lack of a better term. I know yeah. that's... <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. My experience as a poet, when I've done readings or when I've exhibited some art, people will approach me afterward and share their own experiences that were they were reminded of. And so it can be a real way to connect with other people right. as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's so important is you see these things and it strikes up either a conversation in your head or if you're lucky enough to meet the artist, you can talk to them about it. I think yes. you're right. Um, you sharing your feelings with about your mother and kind of you know, the difficulties that you face because no relationship is perfect. It allows other people to be like, you know what? I experienced something similar and it's a way to connect. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think art is so important. So we'll go back. Thank you. You're welcome. Our program is a library. 
And so while I know we have lots of readers, I also guess that we have a lot of writers out there too. What things do you think you've learned in following your passion as a writer that would help all of our listeners out there that would like to know how to follow their creative passions? The only way to do it is to do it. Right. If somebody's been thinking about writing their story, that can be a great place to start. You can write about a childhood memory, write about something charged with emotion, either something that um, made you very happy, very nervous, embarrassed, angry. Those kind of things in your life will then be charged with, with emotion and give you, propel you in, in ways in your writing, I think. That can be a way to start. I also think being inspired by other pieces of work, whether it be other writing or pieces of art, is another great way to start. So there's nothing wrong with reading a poem written by someone else and then jumping off from that into your own poem. One of the best ways how we learn to do things is by mimicking others. And when we're children, we do that naturally. We mimic those around us. But for some reason, we can think, oh, if we're older, we shouldn't copy or that's cheating in some way. But absolutely not. Just like you might look at an artist like Michelangelo or some other painter that you admire, and you can try those techniques, look at their work, and see if you can capture a kind of element of that work. You can do the same thing in writing. Reading a poem and then looking at what it is that the poet seems to be doing and trying that yourself. Oh, they're using a lot of sensory language around smell. What if I wrote a poem that used a lot of smells? Or, oh, they seem to be writing about a relationship. It's three stages, let's say. Let me try that, writing about something in three stages. So taking inspiration from works that are already there is another great way to sort of launch yourself, maybe in a safe way, a more safe way. Come to a class. A class can be a great place to start a new endeavor, often because classes for beginners will have a bunch of other people doing the same thing. So you realize you're not alone. Classes for beginners, you're allowed to sort of not do it well. A good teacher will encourage you to do bad writing as much as good writing. There's not really a judgment about what it is. It's about the practice. I have books I can recommend that are great for starting new writers, particularly the books by Natalie Goldberg. Natalie Goldberg is a writer who's been around for a long time. But some of her sort of years-old classics called Writing Down the Bones and Wild Mind are both great inspiration for starting writing. She gives some really nice parameters that I use in my teaching to sort of forget about the editor, use your senses. There's tons of books out there that are written about writing. So those can be great jump-offs as long as you don't just bury yourself in reading, 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 and you go ahead and get to the writing part. Right, and like you mentioned earlier, you don't have to have a very fancy setup to start writing. You just kind of have to find what's comfortable for you, whether that's kitchen table, outside under a tree, anywhere, and just kiss the page and work on it. That's right. Because the only way you'll get better is if you continue to work while you're bad, right? Although (laughs) what is bad anyways? Right, right. Right. We try to avoid those bad. Exactly. But but we do. We feel like a novice is a better word. And When you're a novice, you're not supposed to get it all right. It's a process. I've even started writing. This I learned from the teenagers I worked with through Southern Word. I've started writing on my phone. 
Yeah, I'd see them and they'd be reading their poems off their phone and I'd think, what? They're writing on their phone? You know, it's a but, new age. <laughs> new age. But then in the last year or so, I had to have a surgery and I was laid up in bed for a while. And it was not always easy for me to even write in the notebook. My little phone, I could write in my memo app with my one thumb texting, yeah. I found that writing in a new way makes me write about new kinds of things. I was going to ask that. Writing Absolutely. In a different, yeah, I was thinking about that because I was like, would that change it for you? And it you're... does. It sort of changes the, the way in which I write, the speed at which I write, yeah. and the kinds of things, how big the screen is, allows the lines to be only so long. And so, yeah, it sort of shapes your writing in a new way, and it's a way to stir it up. So whatever works. That's so cool. Yeah. I know that you have brought some of your poetry to share, which I'm very excited to hear. <laughs> Thank you. And I think that we would all be very honored to hear it. Thank you. I'd be happy to share. I think I'll read two poems, if that's okay. Absolutely. The first one I will read is a newer poem. I have gone through a divorce recently, and one thing I found was that word divorce did not really seem to sit well with me. I was married a long time, for over 25 years, and I have one son, and our family was, is very close. And when it came time to go through this process, the word divorce was a struggle for me. I wrote this poem inspired by that idea, that that didn't seem the right word. Divorce. To name it plows me under. I leave it fallow. The sound unkind, divided, too far gone. It's closer to a loosening, something blue, not black. Each spring we wrestle, snip, create slack, trim the tangled trellis limbs and vine, while underground, contorted roots remain. One cannot dig out last year's rain from this year's soil, nor repossess the old downed fence post turned to earth. I look for language fitting transplant, rebirth, but see it's been ephemera all along. I hold its frail paper on my tongue. Osculo solvere, azure repudium, contortivella rubra, Weeping canyon, prickly balm. Whatever blame, drought, flood, crop gone to seed, it's like trying to hold a bruise between my teeth. So the struggle to name something that feels unnameable or the labels we put on something that don't seem substantial enough. Yeah. I know when you hear poems read, it can be difficult you don't see them on the page. The words can come by kind of fast. I like reading poems uh, by other writers and being able to read them a few times to really absorb them. So I know that hearing these poems through a podcast is not the most simple process, but what I encourage your listeners to do is you can allow the poems to sort of fall over you like a bedtime story might as you were falling asleep as a child. You don't have to work really hard to like understand the poem on its first reading or remember every word or anything like that. Instead, you can just allow the poem to wash over you and see what feelings it brings up in you. 
The second poem I'll read is called Sleeping with My Son. My son is now 23 years old, but one of the things that I loved when he was a very small child was our bedtime routine, his bedtime routine. He loved for me to get into his little tiny bed with him, you know, (laughs) when he fell asleep. This is kind of a memory poem and a sound poem, and it's called Sleeping with My Son. He calls to me, so I crawl in next to him, the soles of his feet pressed against my thigh, his toes tucked between the sheet and my skin. He doesn't want me to cuddle or crowd him, just be that backdrop to sleep, a floor for his dreams feet, a wall against which he throws the darkness, the loneliness, and all the other words that begin with L. I say them like strung beads between us, our rosary. At one time we were connected, a thick pulsing rope of longing. Look, an L, I told you so. We breathe together, then it slips away, in and out of step, like a limp, another L. I ache when I lie in one spot too long. If I move, he moves. We're docked ships in water. Somehow his skin listens for me. My rustling, my wrestling. The sheets shift, lift, L. There's almost a chant in the breath of our sleep. Listen, look, lust, live, lean, lisp, lava, loss, lone, leap, lord, lark, lay, last, lost, luck, Link, liar, leave, love, leave, love, leave, love, leave. So both of those poems were about loss, really. And I've found that most of the things I write about are about loss. If I were to have all my poems kind of gathered in one place, that might be one of the overarching themes. Though I don't think that my poems are necessarily sad, all sad. They celebrate, I think, those moments of joy. But yeah, my poems are about what I've lost or what I wish for. But in a way, writing poetry brings them back to me. I was about to say that it's a way to keep those memories and bring them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank thank you. Thanks for letting me read those. Thank you for reading those. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love them. Thank you. Both. And I, I so admire your ability to so elegantly put those feelings out there. I think it's so brave to be able to do that. And it takes a certain something inside you to be able to put that down on paper. It's a strength, and I really admire you for it. Thank you, Rebecca. I had a great time. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thank you for tuning in to A Universe of Stories. For more information about the Art and Soul Artist community, please visit www.artandsoulnashville.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.